Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University, and today we are talking about wildlife conservation in Indonesia, and more specifically about the problem of illegal wildlife trafficking. Globally, the illegal trade in mammals, birds, reptiles and insects is thought to be the third most lucrative illicit commerce after drugs and weapons, worth an estimated 10 to 20 billion US dollar. Indonesia is a hotspot for the global trade in wildlife, and in recent years the volume of illegal wildlife trade here has risen dramatically. Like many other trafficking hotspots, however, Indonesia is not only a source country for the global illegal wildlife trade, poachers also supply a huge domestic market, as many Indonesians regard the keeping of caged birds as an important cultural tradition. Domestic demand, therefore, directly contributes to Indonesia's increasingly dramatic loss of biodiversity. So what can be done about illegal wildlife trafficking? Joining me today to discuss this and other questions about wildlife conservation in Indonesia are Eleanor Page, a zoologist and filmmaker from the University of West England, and Adam Miller, executive director and founder of Planet Indonesia, an NGO working on conservation issues in Indonesia. Eleanor, Adam, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having us today. Adam, before we discuss the complex problems of the illegal wildlife trade, let me start by asking you about the broader context in which trafficking occurs, the broader context of wildlife conservation in Indonesia. Apart from trafficking, what other main challenges do you think does Indonesia face in regards to wildlife conservation? So as you mentioned, yeah, right now, kind of the buzzword on the market is is wildlife trade and trafficking, and that's in itself a huge issue in Indonesia. But I think there's been a long history of that in Indonesia, but even a longer history if you look at kind of ecosystem-level issues, particularly land use change and habitat loss. Gosh, there's a million <laughs> there's a million different kind of cases going on, but, you know, the most famous ones that have really get attention all the time is, of course, oil, palm, and mining. Where we're based in Borneo, it's predicted to have, over the last 15 years, you know, maybe the f- fastest rate of deforestation in the world. Some say seconds, some say the fastest. A lot of that is due from oil, palm, and mining, but also at the village level, there's a ton of illegal, um, illegal logging and, and timber concessions as well. So I think when you kind of combine that with the extraction of wildlife for wildlife trafficking, but also there's, you know, many, many different groups in Indonesia have a long history of bushmeat consumption and hunting, when you combine all those together, it just has really created this situation where pretty much everything in Indonesia, every forest you go into, there is, not only is it quickly disappearing, but everything you find in there is somewhere on the IUCN red list of (laughs) endangered species. And then, you know, that's just kind of talking about terrestrial issues. If you move into the oceans, you know, today we're talking mostly about wildlife, but the oceans and and marine situation is, is just as bad. There's just kind of recently a large report that came out from traffic that looked at the illegal coral trade between Indonesia and the Netherlands, and it's millions and millions of kilos of coral every year that are traded to Europe. And then if you also look at things like illegal fishing or unsustainable fishing, um, pretty much from the ocean to the highest peak of the mountains in Indonesia, pretty much everything along that scale is threatened and in decline. Especially the um, palm oil industry, of course, gets a lot of international attention as well. Can you say something about the initiatives uh, that the Indonesian government may have taken to tackle these issues, especially due to the international attention, if there are any? Yeah, so there's definitely been 
some. So the thing, the thing that's really interesting about Indonesia is actually on paper or looking at a policy, you know, from a policy framework, most of the policies and regulations within Indonesia are very, very strong. You know, the protected area system is quite strong, actually. Um, the laws against wildlife trafficking and, and wildlife hunting or the pet trade are quite strong. For the most case, the songbird trade is kind of a special case. But so in most cases, it's quite strong. The permit process for oil palm companies is actually on paper quite strong. That's quite expensive. The monitoring framework for, you know, wildfires got a ton of attention, particularly last year was the big burning year is quite strong. You know, Jokowi, the new president, passed a law, I think in his first year of presidency, a, a moratorium against all burning of peat swamps um, and expansion and loss of peat swamps in Sumatra and Borneo. So the policy is quite strong. The thing is, when you get on the ground and look at how that policy is then translated <laughs> from mm. the office to what's actually happening on the ground, there's almost no implementation across all policies. So I think I think it's starting to get better a little bit, but um, you know it's not it's not like other countries in in Asia or Africa that are hotspots um, where people are really trying to work on you know working with the government to create new policies and create new regulatory frameworks and, and new law enforcement agencies and such. Those things are all here; they're just not working. <laughs> Policy is there if people want to use it, but the problem is people aren't using it. Um, and then that's kind of. A whole nother story. There's a whole number of issues that are related to that, particularly with how the government system works. Corruption is a huge one, particularly with the oil palm industry. There's so many places that you look on a map and it's a hutan lindung, which means a protected forest, and then you get there and it's actually an oil palm plantation. Yeah. So the the that is really the gap. The policy is actually quite from in most cases it's quite strong. There's definitely some specific instances where it's not that great, but once you get onto the ground, there's almost no implementation of all the laws. Yeah, that sounds like a familiar problem. You mentioned that uh, President Jokowi has put in some new initiatives since he came to <coughs> office. Has anything in terms of implementation changed since he became president? Or are the problems basically still the same on the ground as they were on previous administrations? They're, they're quite similar. He's passed, you know, the, the moratorium was a quite a big one. It hadn't really been been used. I do know one case, at least in, in West Kalimantan, where they actually did finally just used it, called Sungai Putri. It's suspected to have maybe the second largest population of orangutans um, in West Kalimantan, 1,500. It's not protected. Um, it's all peat swamp. And there was a logging company who was logging and burning it. Um, and there's an NGO based there, ER, International Animal Rescue, that was really fighting and fighting. And then um, it was all illegal, you know, against the law. There's this moratorium. Um, and finally, the government just did send in a team that did a bunch of aerial photos with drones and found, you know, all these areas where they were draining the peat swamp and burning it and such. And so now there's been action against it. So I think that's one. Another one is that they have put a few incentive systems in the government, particularly related to law enforcement, but it hasn't been as much for law enforcement in the environmental sector, but more the police. So you actually see there's been a lot more arrests and confiscation of in the wildlife trade sector, but it's actually not coming from the Department of Natural Resources, the Department of Forestry. It's coming from the police department, um, which is quite interesting because they should all be working together. But the police department does have an incentive system now where if they are make arrests, they do receive a, a basically a paycheck bonus. 
there's one other issue with the system is there's not really a pathway or a framework set up of consequences for people that are not doing their job. So for instance, you'll find these directors of national parks who you know, are very high up in the system or nature reserves, these, these big name people that will be very well known for illegally letting oil palm come into a protected area or you know, working with logging companies to log a protected area. And then the government solution is just to move them from one national park to a new national park. And so it just creates this system where actually the people that, you know, in my mind should be fired or fined um, are actually just moved around in the system. And so people that often do do something wrong and get caught, they'll move them to a national park that is maybe a little bit more protected or more well-known, um, has a higher profile. So they think that maybe they can't do as much damage there. There's not a, a incentive system and there's also not a consequence system. So there's no benefit for really trying to do your job and there's no consequence for not doing your job. I see. You mentioned that uh, some of the cases where um, action was taken were relating to wildlife trafficking, that some arrests were made there recently. Mm. And of course, illegal <clears throat> trafficking of wildlife has become one of the most pressing um, conservation problems mm. in recent years, or at least one of the most visible ones. Can you mm. give us an idea of the scale of the problem in Indonesia? It depends really almost what group you're talking about, as in fauna or flora. But really these days, pretty much anything that is living in the forest, I feel like is either involved in the pet trade as a live pet, is involved in the wildlife parts trade, which the demand for that within Indonesia isn't that high. But, you know, those that tends to be higher profile things like pangolins or helmeted hornbills, things that are often the demand is in Asia. Um, but then... There's actually a huge, huge local cons bushmeat consumption is a, is a huge issue. And that doesn't really get talked about that often in wildlife trade because it's really hard to monitor. You know, it's just from the forest to the household versus these other things have these long supply chains. But when you get into a lot of these protected areas, you know, you get traders coming in from outside the area that are trapping and, and selling to sometimes within Indonesia, all over Asia, and then also at a local level, anything that has a substantial amount of meat is is being consumed. And so the scale, it's really hard because, you know, we're not, that doesn't even encompass the marine, um, you know, the marine trade, the, the coral trade, as I mentioned earlier, also, you know, the trade for manta ray gills. Um, so pr pretty much everything. I think looking at individual things, I just was with traffic and the reptile trade alone out of Indonesia was something like 15 million, I think. They're trying to raise the quota to have up to 15 million reptiles shipped out of Indonesia for the pet trade in Asia. The songbird trade is well over a million, you know, and then all the illegal trades as well that are more involved in the black market that are not as easy to monitor. Those are thousands of, if not millions. So the scale, I, there's the only word that could really put a number to it is, is massive, beyond massive. And it's almost beyond something that we can even try to quantify. Who's involved yes. in this? Because it's, when it's linked or when it's compared to, say, the arms trade or the drugs trade, um, it's often mm. seen as a, a problem of globally operating criminal syndicates. Um, but you mm. obviously also have the people on the ground who are involved. So um, who, who's involved and what are the different motivations of people who engage in illegal trafficking and poaching? So, yeah, again, it varies a little bit case to case, but the one maybe that we could talk about now because I just finished a big conference would be um, the helmeted hornbill, which is uh, a hornbill species, a bird species that has a, a bill that's completely made of ivory, um, and it's really exploded on the international market because 
the yellow and red ivory is, has a very high demand, particularly in China. So I think what, what has shocked us about our investigations into this trade, and we actually find this with a number of species, is a lot of times the people, the actual poachers on the ground, are really victimized by you know the international scene. And in some cases they should be, but in many times they actually have, have no idea that that species is worth anything. So for instance, in our helmeted hornbill investigations, we often find that people go to villages, go to these areas where they know they're already consuming bushmeat, they're already going into the forest to find protein, and they say, hey, if you see a helmeted hornbill, if you see this bird, shoot it, and I'll buy it for $5. Well, one helmeted hornbill in Laos was over $5,000. So, so there's they almost a lot of these traders and, and middlemen and kind of gangster activities actually really prey on communities as, you know, to actually do the poaching. And they, they use lack of awareness and lack of understanding of Indonesian laws and, and even the lack of, you know, awareness of the trade. I, I think most poachers, if they actually knew that that species was worth that much money, they, they may still kill it, but, you know, they definitely wouldn't do it for $5. So I think that that is really interesting because I think a lot of times people maybe draw on the situation in, in Africa um, at least for Indonesia, and I found, at least in our work, it's it's quite different. There are definitely poachers that maybe do that for a full-time job um, that are much more involved in the system. But at the at the kind of protected area level, we often find that poachers are people that are farmers, are doing, a, you know, have different livelihoods and other things, and then just occasionally someone will come there and, and ask them to, you know, bring them 25 hornbills, for example, or pangolins is quite similar. Then from there, they move to middlemen. And then at that middleman level is really once you start getting kind of at that more gangster and organized crime. And we find from there's usually middlemen within Indonesia then, that then move, if it's an international trade, then move it to middlemen somewhere else in Asia. And then it eventually usually goes to China. Mm-hmm. Helmeted hornbills aren't only found in Indonesia. You know, they're found in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand and Myanmar. There doesn't even really seem like there's, you know, we just finished this conference and there's a little bit of poaching going on there. But if you compare it to the scale of what's happening in Indonesia, it's absolutely nuts. <laughs> and I think it's because whenever these, you know, wildlife prices go up or there's some demand, you know, the middlemen and the people involved in this trade, they, they know where to go. They know where the law enforcement is not. They know where it's easy to get communities involved in the trade. It's easy to make more money there because they probably don't know. Um, and so, Indonesia always seems to be the first target whenever kind of one wildlife part or species blows up on the market. Is there a similar kind of demand for these kinds of products in Indonesia domestically as it is overseas? Because I want to sort of highlight that there is, of course, both an international and a domestic um, dimension to the issue. Um, But domestically, and we'll talk about that with Eleanor in a second, it's perhaps more about the um, songbirds. Mm. But is there a demand in Indonesia Mm. as well for these, say, products from hornbills or tigers or orangutans Mm. for that matter? As far as we know, close to none. There's been a few cases of helmeted hornbill ivory, not a few, I think like one or two pieces that were found, one like a ring in North Sumatra and then I think two carvings in Bali. But as far as we know, you know, if you compare it to the hundreds and hundreds that are going, for instance, into China, Lao also has, there's been some surveys in Lao that have shown that there's a decent amount of helmeted hornbill sold there. I would say the demand within Indonesia is close to none. It's almost, you know, it's insignificant compared to the whole trade. And and I think that that's quite common across a lot of these, you know, not just with helmeted hornbills, but tigers, pangolins. 
I don't think that there's there's really a demand. I think that um, one, it's it's so expensive and they can sell it for so much more outside of Indonesia. Um, but two, there's just not the strong kind of cultural and in seeking of status and owning those pieces. I think, you know, and Eleanor will talk a lot more about this, but status in Indonesia a lot of times is owning live animals versus owning animal parts. So yeah, I don't I think the I think the demand is quite small within within the country. Yeah, and that's of course in stark contrast to the demand for small songbirds. So Eleanor, you've just mm. returned from Indonesia where you have interviewed a broad range of people involved in the illegal songbird trade for a documentary film project that you've made and you've called this project Tainted Love. Could you tell us why you named this project Tainted Love? Yeah, of course. So the term Tainted Love, it's ten, it's used really to describe uh, like a deep love that it's somehow spoiled or corrupted. It's something that can't last. And that's like, in a way, that's exactly what's happening in Indonesia. These uh, hobbyists, they really love their birds. They appreciate the individual birds, but it is causing devastation to the wild populations there as many of them are trapped from the wild. Um, last year in the IUCN, red list update there were 19 um, Indonesian birds uplisted all of but one of them were songbirds and the the biggest threat to them wasn't habitat destruction as it is uh, many species it's actually the domestic songbird trade yeah so how again I know questions about scale are difficult but how would you rate the scale of songbird keeping in Indonesia it's enormous. Birds are Indonesia's most popular pet. Um, it's about the same number of people um, in Western countries, such as the USA and Europe, who keep dogs. It's the same proportion of people who keep birds. Mm. So it, um, it's a massive number of um, households. In the five largest cities in Java, it's a conservative estimate is there are 2.6 million birds being kept um, many of them from the wilds. About six, uh, around ten years ago, when the survey was done, sixty percent of those households um, kept wild caught birds. In um, there are eighty to one hundred bird markets across Java. There's one in almost every city. And uh, for example, in Pramuka, the largest market in Jakarta, in just one day, it was recorded that there were. There were uh, over 16,000 birds for sale in just one day. So the scale is, it's really enormous. Is this the keeping of birds because it's also pretty much out in the open? Um, the cages can be seen everywhere. There are bird song competitions yeah. everywhere. So we often speak about the illegal trafficking, but is this part of keeping birds um, as pets at home? Um, what's the legal framework for that? Is that also illegal? It depends on the certain um, on the species. As far as I'm aware, there are um, certain species that are protected. For example, uh, sunbirds. But these people uh, aren't aren't breaking the law. Maybe Adam can um, chip in mm. here, but I don't believe that they're actually breaking the law. The songbird trade is, is real complicated when it comes to law. So right now, the there's the species of um, Indonesia undang undang no malima, which is the like draft of species that are protected. Right now, for what for whatever reason, songbirds and flower peckers and and that such are protected. And I think when they the, that list was last updated in 1999. And I think when they put those birds on the list, they put them on there because they're quite sensitive. You know, they all feed on honey and nectar and 
they don't usually live long in captivity. So I think that was the rationale for putting them on there. It's quite strange because out of all the species that could be on there to be that need to be protected and are threatened by the wild bird trade, those are probably the last ones I would ever put on there. There's so many other that are so much more important. <laughs> so technically, most of it is legal. The issue is there is a set of Indonesian laws where they do set quotas, and the quota is the number of, of birds that are allowed to be taken from the wild. The quota for all songbirds in Indonesia is actually zero. So based on that law, actually all songbird trade is illegal. <laughs> so it's quite complicated, but what the government goes off of is that list of, of protected species. So they're revising it right now. Hopefully it'll be out next year. I just had a meeting with the government. They've, they won't give the list to anyone, but they did say that most of these species that are being hit really hard by the trade will be on the new list. There's something like 400 species protected right now in Indonesia, and that's about to jump up to 839. They absolutely should be on the list. You know, so many organizations have been lobbying them. There's a group, the Songbird Crisis Group has been lobbying them. The IUCN uplisted them. So if they're not put on the list, well, in my mind, two things. One, if they're not put on the list, if they've, you know, last time they, they made the list was 99. So it could be another 17 years. In those 17 years, most of these birds will be extinct. And the second thing is, the data is too strong to not put them on the list. So if they're not put on the list, there's there's corruption somewhere. And we find in our investigations that there's a, a lot, a lot of government officials that own songbirds. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky with the law, but they go off of the protected species list and most are not protected. So in that way, it is legal. I was going to add, having said that there are a certain number of protected species at the moment, mm. for example, the mm. sunbirds, you still see them yeah. uh, traded in the markets, openly. Yeah. There's, it's, it's really not... Uh, doesn't appear mm -hmm. to be a deterrent. So when you visit the markets, I assume, did you visit the markets for your documentary? I did, yeah. Yeah, so when you visited those markets, um, you would have seen probably protected and not protected species. So would you have encountered any hostility from the people there when you came to talk to them? Because you did speak to both traders as well as trappers who provide yeah. the birds for these markets, right? Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, I was anticipating to get um, some uh, hostility, but I really didn't encounter any. And that may have been because I was, um, I was working with with local people and with um, Planet Indonesia themselves. And people were really rather open about uh, talk about what they were doing and very uh, happy to talk about it. Whether or not they were um, telling the truth is difficult to difficult to ascertain, but I think for the most part they, they were because they were, um, for example, one of the traders that I talked to, you know, he, he told me, that they, everyone in the market knows who comes and does the inspections and they know when they're going to come. So they just move all of the protected species into his uh, kind of away from the market into the traders' homes or storage buildings. So people were really um, open and I didn't, I didn't get much hostility or any kind of um, people not wanting me to film or anything like that. It was really interesting. Did you get the impression that the people that you spoke to, um, the people involved in the trade, that they are aware of the broader impact the songbird trade has on birds in the wild? It's um, Well, it's something that I asked uh, many of the interviewees. And in general, there is 
I would say it's it's difficult to say because it did vary from person to person, but I'd say there's a kind of acknowledgement that many of the species are wild caught, but it's something that I think they either don't want to think, don't think about or don't want to think about um, the impacts that it's having. Or uh, in some cases, they just didn't believe that it was having an impact on wild populations. One of the hobbyists I spoke to, he... Um, he was particularly interested in uh, nature as well as keeping birds in the in a cage, and he was he was aware uh, of uh, the conserva- conservation issues involved in trapping wild birds and keeping wild caught birds. But he said that he would continue, even though he's concerned about the um, the fauna in Indonesia and. He knows that what he's doing is having an impact. He would continue to um, mm. to keep the wild caught birds, and he um, he said unless unless the government does something about it, that's what he'll continue to do. I think there have been some suggestions of getting these people involved into, for example, ecotourism projects instead, um, if they are actually concerned about wildlife, as they say. Um, and they may just not be aware of the broader impact that their activities are having. With ecotourism is a difficult one. I did speak to a local conservationist who's managed to convert poachers into bird guides um, to help him in his business. And there are example, other examples where um, poachers have been converted to kind of rescue centre staff or wildlife guides but it's a difficult one because of ecotourism sometimes the income um, from that can be quite sporadic it can be very seasonable um, so it's not it's not necessarily the only solution captive breeding is another thing that's been talked about but as as Adam says enforcement um, is a big problem and captive breeding can be a way for wild birds to be laundered essentially um, and mm. put into the system as captive bred birds. And I did speak with hobbyists that um, at once once I talked to them about the conservation implications of uh, keeping wild caught birds, they were very open to switching to captive bred birds. But um, yeah, and it, it would need to be definitely very. Uh, tightly regulated to ensure that all of those birds are in fact captive bred and not wild caught. Are there any initiatives that you're aware of that could help to reduce the demand for birds in general? Um, You've encountered this as a culturally ingrained hobby in Indonesia. So um, are there any, yeah, promising initiatives to perhaps change these traditions or these patterns somehow so that less people perhaps demand um, birds yeah it's a really difficult one because as you said it is very ingrained in the culture and it would be similar to people in the USA or Europe not keeping dogs anymore like it's it is very Mm. important to them so I think complete um, reduction in demand is is something that probably isn't going to happen in the in the near future but shifting shifting demand to different species or um, better education is very important. It's been shown that more educated hobbyists who keep the birds are more likely to have uh, pro-conservation mindsets. So better education and perhaps shifting shifting demand from wild caught to uh, captive bred birds 
is perhaps a starting point anyway. I know uh, Pelestari Burung Indonesia, which is basically the Indonesian Ornithological Society, they organise several birdsong competitions across the region and they have started an initiative where they have higher prizes for captive bred classes. So that can help... um, start to switch demands in that area yeah that's good this could work in indonesia for songbirds adam how about initiatives to reduce demand for animal products wildlife products because the problem there is slightly different uh, uh, people that mm. um, buy products from say tigers or pangolins or hornbills um, mm. for them it's not about captive bred or wild caught how can the demand for these kinds of products be reduced? It's tough. I think that there's there's a good initiative right now. Um, this isn't really related to Indonesia as much, but it's um, a behavior change program run by traffic in Vietnam about rhino horn consumption. What behavior change does is actually looks at um, you know shifting the behavior and shifting the demand away from those things, but it, it tries to do it in a way where it makes owning those products almost uncool. So what they're doing in Vietnam, um, you know, is very interesting. It's very targeted. Um, So what they found in Vietnam, most of the people that consume rhino horn are actually very, very wealthy businessmen who drink it as a source um, to to get rid of a hangover, Um, which is, you know, it's crazy to think that rhinos are disappearing because just because we have hangovers. But so what they've done is... Their campaign is very much focused on this idea. They created the symbol called Chi, and it's focused on this idea that the most successful people on in Vietnam actually uh, don't need rhino horn to reduce a hangover. So you're more successful or you're more of a man if you can get rid of your hangover without this product. <laughs> um, so there's nothing about rhinos are endangered or, or anything like that. Um, it's simply actually attacking the status symbol. So it's it's trying to shift this idea that you know, I'm more of a man because I drink this. It's actually I'm less of a man or I'm less of a businessman. And so I think that what they've learned there could be very applicable to particularly the songbird trade um, in Indonesia. I think there's a number a number of methods that could be used. I think behavior change absolutely has to be there. And there's not really any large campaigns um, focusing on that right now. We've, we've, we do a number of outreach activities, but we need a whole combination of issues like, uh, sorry, of strategies and initiatives. If we think about ecotourism, for example, in our area, it wouldn't work at all because one is there's no tourists that come here. They can go to Malaysia, Borneo, and it's much, you know, much more developed. It's less expensive. And then, for instance, some of the in some of the protected areas that we work in, tourists aren't even allowed in by the government. It's illegal. So ecotourism is not even an option. So I think, um, I think there needs to be a number of strategies, but I think this idea of awareness, creating awareness, you have to be very careful because if we create awareness in Java that a lot of these birds are decreasing in the wild, that can also make those birds more desirable. That's why there's been this kind of big focus that we should focus on behavior change versus awareness, not just making people aware the birds are decreasing or getting more rare, but actually really trying to destroy <laughs> this idea that owning a bird makes you more of a man. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I like to finish this podcast on a positive note, even though if it's um, (laughs) a very difficult topic. So, um, yeah, the example that you mentioned from Vietnam um, was an interesting one, and perhaps there's some scope for that to be applied in Indonesia. So, yeah, thank you very much for these insights, uh, Elena and Adam.
That was Eleanor Page from the University of West England and Adam Miller from Planet Indonesia, speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 6th of July for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.